Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. And it's Black History Month, a time when we look back at the hardships black people in the United States have endured since they were first abducted to this continent and highlight the glory of the community's achievements despite centuries of oppression. And while recognizing this community's glory, its greatness born of grit, one might say, we must also acknowledge the blind spots stemming from what might be called a desire to rise above. And so we ask, what do you get when you combine a community seeking respect after a long history of indignity with a virus that thrives on shame affecting the most vulnerable in our population? Well, for one thing, you get poems like this one heard on last week's episode of Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows, hosted by Kai Wright. This poem talks about a family going to a funeral of a son who died of AIDS and how they respond to it. The mother was radiant and too composed. She wore a black on black silk dress, which tied at the neck with a large bow and ended below the knee in a wide knife pleats. Her salt and pepper hair pulled them to her. The poem goes on to describe the whole family's insistent, cold dignity in this kind of detail until arriving at the deceased's lover. Jeff unconsciously reached out to touch the pewter casket, but was intercepted by the mother. She whisked her hand away from the freezing politeness and said, he's gone now. So there's one excerpt from Blind Spot on last week's episode. Kai, who is normally the host and managing editor of Notes from America, heard here on Sunday nights at 6, uh, and now of Blind Spot, which WNYC produced with the History Channel. Kai investigated how what's known as respectability politics amongst the black community clashed with the AIDS epidemic in 1980s Harlem in particular, and Kai is back with us now to share some of what he's found. Hi, Kai. Always great to have you on this show. How are you doing? I am well. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, do you want to riff on that poem a little bit and that excerpt? Yeah. There, so there's a few things happening there that are worth naming. Um, so um, the poem is written by a person named Craig G. Harris, and it's published in 1986 in a collection called In the Life, which is a collection of black gay writing at that time. Uh, and the person reading it is George Bellinger Jr., who is uh, a friend of mine, somebody I've known for a long time, uh, and covering and working on the epidemic and the black community. Um, and uh, so Craig was George's best friend. Uh, Craig died in uh, 1991. Um, and at the time that book is published and that poem is published, there, it's a moment in which black gay men, um, black queer people in general, um, so it's not just gay men, but it is primarily gay men with lesbians, transgender folks, 
um, and people who don't identify as any of those things, but that are part of the queer community, the black queer community, are looking up and saying, oh my goodness, this epidemic um, is uniquely relevant to us um, and no one cares. And um, and what had been an arts movement, um, there had been this uh, often unknown, uh, undiscussed uh, black queer arts movement in the 80s um, in D.C. and in New York um, that George and Craig and all those folks were, were part of was starting to morph into an AIDS movement. Um, uh, and so you hear their art start to take it up. And Craig, um, in that poem, starts taking up one of the core questions, which is the ways in which our own community um, was responding to the epidemic and responding to us in, in our place in that community. Um, and, you know, the scene, the, the, the scene of, the, of, of the AIDS funeral, which um, people who have followed this epidemic will, will be familiar with, um, where lovers and family members and uh, our lovers and friends and lives are erased by family um, because their lives were shameful to them. Uh, that's that's what's that's that's the scene that Craig is describing in that poem. And and so here's a clip of Craig Harris, who was not the reader of that poem in the first clip, but the person who wrote that poem. Um, from a moment when he grabbed the mic at a 1986 conference of the American Public Health Association. Because they have been led to believe by the public health system and all forms of media to believe that people of color are not suffering from AIDS in significant numbers. In reality, almost 40% of people diagnosed with AIDS in the country at that very moment were either Black or Latino. And he told them, maybe you'd notice this disparity if you let us speak more often. Please remember that as you are victims of a society which is institutionally racist, heterosexist, and classist, you may benefit from the experience and input of your Black, Latino, and Asian peers who are on the front line fighting inadequate health care for our communities. Thank you very much. So, Kai, was the context of that 1986 clip that this American Public Health Association panel that he was speaking to had no diversity? It's it, That is the context, but it's really broader than that. It's, it's again, and remember, that's the same year that he published that poem. Um, it is, the, the context is that year of this group of people waking up to, we have to save ourselves. So they were at that conference, Craig and a number of other of these um, black queer activists that I'm talking about, to create an organization called the National Minority AIDS Council, which still exists today, that became the vehicle for challenging two things. One, challenging the black community's failure to respond and to pay attention to the epidemic that was unfolding. And then challenging the public health communities, um, uh, and I'll have to say the broader white gay communities, belief that this was an epidemic that was solely about white gay men. That that up until really that time, it was still very much in the public conversation and in the public health conversation, focused on infections amongst a very particular group of people, um, which were white gay men from a handful of big cities. Uh, and by that point, that was just no longer true of the epidemic, even of the documented cases. And so the context was them standing up, people like Craig, who literally just stormed the stage at that time with a, group, a bunch of other people, took the mic and said, hey, you know, 
uh, we're not going to get anywhere if you don't start paying attention to us and, in fact, letting us lead. And in your reporting, you spoke with former governor of New York, David Patterson, who um, before being governor was was a representative of the state legislature from Harlem. And here's something he had to say in your show about our misunderstandings of the black community in this context. The black community, I think, is misunderstood in other parts of the city and even other parts of the country. The black community is largely conservative, church-going, family-building. And intensely ambitious. I think there were people who, you know, they worked hard. They were starting to get to places. And they, at times, probably felt that there was irresponsibility in the community that was holding them back. Former Governor David Patterson. So, Kai, does this get into the theme uh, of the episode around what's known as respectability yeah. politics? And I think not all of our listeners know that term, right. though many will. So maybe put that in some some context and then in the context of your series. Yeah. So to start with, you know, we wanted to tell the story of that we wanted we wanted to try to help understand why the black community, which this is just a fact, um, black traditional leadership took so long to confront this epidemic. Um, uh, it's, you know, and we're talking about mainstream civil rights organizations. We're talking about the church leadership. We're talking about um, political clubs and elected officials. Why did it take so long for us to to confront an epidemic that was in the data as early as the mid 80s, so clearly overwhelmingly black? Um, and um, and so we set that story in Harlem uh, specifically, though you could have told this story in a lot of places. But Harlem was one of the epicenters nationally early on. And I talked to David Patterson because, you know, I mean, amongst the people alive today, he's knows Harlem politics better than most, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he's trying to explain there this an under an idea in the community that people outside of the black community may not fully understand and respect and 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 embrace and this is you know going back to the early 20th century uh, a primary strain of black politics was arguing it was what we now call black excellence. We celebrate black excellence now, right? Um well that idea started in the early 20th century when The core ideas about racism were that black people were inherently inferior. And so a really important political idea and organizing idea throughout the community's history has been proving that, no, we are not inferior Um, and um, and doing so over and over and over again. And there's a lot there has been, you know, decades of debate about whether that's a fool's errand. But nonetheless, it is an important part of uh, of our politics and that and 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 that has an edge to it because part of that is if people who, who who feel strongly about that idea feel like you know if you are not doing your part in the community to prove uh, our excellence uh, then you are bringing disrespect and disrepute on the community and this was a really powerful idea in the 80s in particular at that it was a turning point uh, you know, you have to remember it was the height of the crack epidemic. It was the onset of the Reagan administration. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of those people who we talk about who were in leadership positions had spent 20 years fighting for things that were being reversed already. Um, and um, 
and and they just didn't have space for people in the community who they felt like were not helping. And that was, you know, and this is an epidemic that at the time was still understood to be about drug users and promiscuous gay men. And neither were those of those two groups of people fell under (laughs) uh, respectable types of black people. Anybody listening right now who maybe lived in Harlem in the 1980s or maybe was uh, connected yourself um, to anybody in black New York who had AIDS at the time, or maybe you yourself did, uh, or who wants to ask Kai Wright a question about anything pertaining to his Blind Spot series, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Looking back to the 1980s, the series is Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows, 212-433-9692. Call or text. Meanwhile, we're going to set up another clip because part of this lack of response as you've already kind of indicated, came from the religious leaders, or some of them, in the community at the time. And here's a clip uh, of when you spoke with Pernessa Seal, who you credit with leading a crusade to convince black clergy to get involved in the fight against AIDS. You know, God hates homosexuals, or God hates you because you, you know, doing drugs, or this is a raft of God, or some whatever negative, destructive messaging that they got, most times they got it from the pulpit, the most influential place in our community. Want to talk about her or the context yeah. of that clip? Yeah. Well, so, you know, as uh, she, as Pernessa says in that clip, as Governor Patterson says in the episode, is, you know, anybody certainly uh, who has been active in the black community for a very long time knows the church is just hugely important. And it's been a hugely important part of my life, I need to name, you know. Um, it's just a hugely, particularly on caretaking, right? I mean, there's so many times in my life growing up where my church, my mother's church, people from there intervened to make my life better, to make me safe, to take care of me when my parents were around, weren't around. It's just a core function of that part of our community. And it did not do that in the AIDS epidemic at the beginning. Um, and to quite to the contrary, uh, it uh, as such a powerful institution, so many pastors at best were ignoring it and at worst saying, you know, this is the wrath of God. We have to, you know, we, we can't, you have to ignore these people. You, you, we, this is God's punishment for this kind of, this kind of terrible behavior. And, um, and so Pernessa Seal, uh, who you heard there, was someone who moved to New York um, at the height of the epidemic from uh, South Carolina, Lincolnville, South Carolina, to work at Harlem Hospital uh, as a social worker and to do epidemiological work on on AIDS. Um, and she was a, she is a person of deep faith um, and deeply involved in the church. And she looked up and was like, where you know, she's on the ward of this hospital. Uh, and she's like, where is the church? Where are the, you know, how come nobody's here praying with these people who are dying? That's what we do at the church. What's going on? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and she got angry. And, um, and so she organized, she began organizing in the church to change that. She organized the first, was called the Harlem Week of Prayer for the Healing of AIDS uh, in, I want to say it was 1987. Now I'm going to get it wrong off the top of my head. <clears throat> um, and she, that year, convinced 
50 faith institutions uh, in Harlem to come march around Harlem Hospital and pray with her. Um, and she was able to do that because she understood the church. She understood she was she, she was peer organizing and she founded an organization called Balm and Gilead that still exists. Um, it has thousands of faith institutions uh, all around the world now uh, mobilized in talking about educating, developing ministries around HIV and health in general in black communities. Uh, it is one of the incredible successes uh, of this epidemic. Uh, and she changed hearts, she changed minds, and she saved lives. And she's a really remarkable human being. Let's take a couple of phone calls. Uh, people are calling in who do remember the 1980s in this context. And one of them in Harlem at the time is Lois in Denver today. Lois, you're on WNYC with Kai Wright. Thank you for calling in. Good morning, both of you. Um, yeah, I was... Uh, so back in the 80s, um, I was in the whole ACT UP movement, but it became clear to me, and I was also working for the AIDS, New York City AIDS um, hotline, um, and there was a job up in East Harlem doing HIV prevention and counseling. Um, and so I started taking what I was learning downtown, uptown, and it was overwhelming. I was so young. I just graduated from college, and in short, I then wrote a proposal to the city and uh, became the director of the, got, a, got money to start the first program, um, housing for homeless relays in the South Bronx. Mm. So I went from working in Harlem up to the South Bronx. I'm white, I'm married to a woman. Um, I'm, I'm now a physician, but back then I was just kind of a college graduate doing all these things, just trying to figure things out and how to translate what I was learning downtown, mm. uptown, it was just, unbelievable devastation in the communities but the one of my, one of the greatest um, memories i have from that time was i hired all of my recovering addicts to work in the program up in in the south bronx and they were just amazing at working with the residents that we had in our program and then my my right hand person was a, a black woman who was very religious came from her church and was so proactive in helping uh, the gay community and, and people with AIDS wherever, whatever their struggle was. She and I were just completely connected at the hip in terms of how to, how to run things. She was a nurse and she was, it was just a kind of amazing experience with beautiful people coming together to help a completely forgotten mm. community. Hi, anything and I never wanna... call your show. I'm very shy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. You you made a great debut, yeah, and so did uh, your dog, by the uh, way. Um, but Kai, you want to ask <laughs> Lois anything about her oral history? Well, I'd say a couple of. I mean, first off, thank you so much, Lois, for sharing that. And it just makes me think of so many people we have talked to and that I have known in my life who have very similar stories of. You know, you talk about uh, you were you you were just trying to figure it out at the time. There's so many people who were just trying to figure it out, you know, whose lives who had not set up their lives to be first responders to this epidemic. Um, but um, but said, well, I, I have this is what I'm facing and I have to figure out how to do it um, and just stepped up. Um, and um, and it's just it's just been so wonderful to hear all of their stories. And for many of them, Lois, uh, it's so yeah. I've noticed I, I think it's because of that that it feels so when we go and ask them about it now, it feels so present tense for them. It feels like we're asking about things that happened just yesterday. I wonder if that's true for you as well, that 
something about it sounds yeah. like you were young at the time uh, maybe uh, that's I part was of it so too. young and overwhelmed I wasn't ready to deal with people dying one mm-hmm. one young man died in our facility because the the hospital turned away this I, I still remember I guess I can say his first name um, or I can just say his name started with a C and he died in our facility because the, the hospitals kept turning him away he was just 23 he was gay he mm-hmm. was uh, rejected by his family and um you know and we weren't prepared to do, to be a hospice at all and i was not you know right. i was an international relations major i'm now a physician right. um <laughs> but you know it's interesting i think that all of the feelings from that time were were kind of you know buried um but uh, working through the covid acad- uh, uh, epidemic and i was working in brooklyn um during covid in new york and um and, and then all of that came to four, it all yeah. came back. Yeah. Um, it was like, oh my God, this is my second epidemic I'm working through. So, mm. yeah. Wasn't Lois, expecting thank, that. So. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for You're contributing welcome. some oral history to this segment. That was wonderful. Louis in bed remembers then too and personally affected. You're on WNYC. Hi, Louis. Yeah. Hi, Brian. Hi, Ty. Uh, yeah, my name is Louis. Um, I was a person diagnosed with HIV AIDS um, in December of 1986, and um, it's true, you know, um, uh, there was really no response in my community in Harlem at the time I was living in Harlem, and um, I remember to get information or to get any type of support, um, I had to cross boundaries, you know, I had to go downtown. And um, I became a member of ACT UP New York, um, East Coalition Unleashed Power. Um, it was in that group, that activist group, that was predominantly gay white men that um, people were dying. I didn't care, you know what I mean? Um, I'm a, uh, a black man, you know, but I wanted the information. Because after a dear friend of mine died, you know, um, I didn't know where to go with the anger you know, and with the fear, mm. you know, and so I just went to um, where I could get information, where I could get help, you know, but it was because of that, you know, I was moved with a number of friends of mine to take over a building in Harlem, which still stands today, um, as a grassroots response, you know, to the crisis. Um, we took over a building, and I was a heroin user at the time, you know, um, IDU, and anyone coming out of prison or off the streets, you know, um, could find a place, you know, that had an open door. You know, we didn't ask the question, when was the last time you used? When was the last time you ate? And we just took you in, and we just formed, you know, our own um, intentional, functional, and conscious community called Stand, you know, which still runs today. Louis, let me ask you a question. When you um, first got involved with ACT UP, and I'm glad you said the whole name of it because people probably in large numbers know the name ACT UP as the activist group or a activ- an activist group uh, around the AIDS crisis back then, but have forgotten or never knew what it stood for, that it was an acronym for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, ACT UP. And you found it mostly... Um, involving white activists, did they, 
embrace diversity over time once you and other people got involved, or did you find resistance? Any kind, any resistance. Um, I definitely found you know that they embraced me. You know, they were members of that club that um, I became a member of the housing committee because I was, uh, at the time, living in a community shelter. And um, they were very supportive with an idea that I and a few others had in regards to knowing a building at Brownstone on 120th Street that wasn't being utilized. (laughs) And we thought, well, we can put it to good use. And um, we took the building over. It was owned by a Catholic church. You know, and um, later we got in touch with the uh, the priests that had the building, um, and we were permitted to utilize the building. You know, yeah. Um, and of for, course, housing for people who were around then, housing was such a big issue for people uh, yeah. with AIDS. Uh, that's how the group Housing Works, for example, got started. Louis, thank you very much. I'm going to get one more in here before we run out of time, Kai. Uh, Mendes in Jersey City, you're on WNYC. Hello, Mendes. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Kai, uh, great work. Thanks for your work. Um, actually, it was very close to me and personal. Um, I was in Manhattan at the time, a young fella. Uh, I spent time at Columbia University. But I do remember as a Haitian background, it was a double whammy because we had to face that crisis. So, I mean, it was so brutal for the Haitian community. Uh, we were, you know, it was almost embarrassing as a young Haitian American. And, you know, all you hear, we had a big march at, uh, on the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. I, I participated. I mean, I was young, but I've always been an activist. So, thanks for bringing this up, but it was really uh uh the uh the gay men of New York and the Haitians we were really it was horrible and and, and that's one of the that. things that you're referring to that some listeners who weren't around then may not know is that Haitians were inaccurately tagged as an independent risk group for AIDS and HIV is that part of what you're referring to of course, Brian. I, uh, I mean, it was really. I mean, you know, the, it, of course, racism plays a role, and you know, and uh, you know, it was really critical for us Haitian background because we were portrayed as you know people with disease, and uh, at the time, people were dying. Uh, yes, when it was when it wasn't even true. Um, thank you, thank you, Mendes, for your recollection. Kai, we've just got about a minute left. Anything on on those last couple of callers, or anything else as we go? Yeah, two quick things. One, uh, and I'm pretty sure I've met Louis um, because his work has been remarkable, and I think I've covered it in the past. Hmm. Um, and it really reminds me, like the co- one of the core things about this history when we think about a group like ACT UP is it's it there's so much mutual aid and caretaking in this history and we think of the big activism it's almost like uh, the history of the Black Panthers we think of the big uh, public activism and civil disobedience and that's super important but the like a really big important part of these histories is the ways in which people like Louis stood up and took care of each other and created created 
created ways for people to come together when institutions were failing. Um, and so that's something that I really have been inspired by. And the other thing is I'll say is if I can just plug coming up in a couple of weeks, February 25th on Notes from America, we're going to do two hour special of exactly this and just opening the phones and getting people to call us up and tell us their stories uh, because this has touched so many people. Um, so um, if you didn't get to if you didn't get to share your story in this segment, tune in in a couple of weeks, you're going to get a chance to tell us. Hey, AIDS and HIV are still with us, as you know. Is it better now? Absolutely. I mean, you have to acknowledge process or progress. Absolutely. That um, infection rates are continue to fall. Deaths uh, have fallen dramatically. However, um, you know what the best way to understand the epidemic now to me is with many other healthcare issues. If you are inside the health system, science has done its job um, and you can avoid infection and you can avoid and, and if you're infected, you can live a, a, a full healthy life. Um, and if you are outside the healthcare system, you do not have access to that science. Um, and it's 1985. And we leave it there with Kai Wright, host and managing editor of Notes from America, our live national call-in show Sunday nights at six on WNYC and host now of this season of Blind Spot on AIDS in the 1980s in the respects that he's been describing in conjunction with the History Channel, wherever you get your podcasts. Kai, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian.